0: Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. When the iPhone first came out, Steve Jobs opposed allowing third-party apps on it. As Walter Isaacson writes in his Jobs biography, Jobs, quote, didn't want outsiders to create applications for the iPhone that could mess it up, infect it with viruses, or pollute its integrity. Eventually, Jobs relented, and you might say the rest is history. Today, there are more than 2 million apps available in Apple's App Store. This makes sense. iPhones and iPhone apps are what economists call complementary goods. If there are lots of good apps available, demand for iPhones will increase. Indeed, making the App Store into a marketplace ensures that enterprising app developers can fill niches that no one else, including an Apple, would otherwise imagine. But Jobs' concern about the tension between quality control and openness lives on. Last year, Epic Games sued Apple, alleging that the tight controls Apple sets on third party apps, along with the commissions Apple collects on in-app sales, violate the antitrust laws. Epic versus Apple has attracted a lot of attention, and for good reason. The case is both momentous in its own right and worth watching for what it might tell us about the various other litigation and potential legislation being aimed at the nation's largest tech companies. Epic versus Apple proceeded to a bench trial before Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers in the Northern District of California. Last Friday, she issued her ruling. Everyone seems to agree that the ruling is best described as being mostly in favor of Apple. Success is not illegal, the judge wrote nonetheless, how far that mostly in mostly in favor, uh, how far that goes, is an interesting question, and one I look forward to discussing with my guest. Indeed, I'm very excited about my guest today. Jeff Manny is the president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. I've admired his work for a long time. He's been watching Epic versus. Apple closely. Today, he'll be telling us all about Judge Rogers' decision and what we should make of it. Jeff, it's really great to have you on.
1: Thanks, Gordon. It's great to get the chance to chat with you.
0: Yeah. Um, There's a lot to unpack here, from the weird way that Epic chose to start this lawsuit, uh, to what Epic was complaining about, to the various specific rulings that
1: Judge Gonzalez
0: Rogers made. So you know, please feel free to start wherever you like.
1: Let me let me start here. I you raised the 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 question whether well you you mentioned the statement that most people think the decision was mostly in Apple's favor. It's a question sort of exactly how much, and I think that's an interesting place to start. Start at the end. That seems sure reasonable thing to do. Um, uh, you know there were ten counts. Uh, alleged by Epic against Apple and the judge only found in Epic's favor on one of them. Um, so right there, you know, significantly in Apple's favor. Um, there were basically, I think there are technically three, but let's just call it two um, bases for, uh, for finding liability, one under federal law and one under state law. There were two state statutes involved, but it doesn't really matter. Um, And she found no liability under federal law, under the Sherman Act, under the federal antitrust laws. Um, But she did find liability in this one count under the California State Unfair Competition. law. It's not technically, I guess, an antitrust law. Um, It is a consumer protection law. The judge cited two um, judicial decisions in California that, indicated that it's not coextensive with the with the Sherman Act uh, and that in, indeed you could be found perfectly your conduct could be found perfectly acceptable under the Sherman Act and nevertheless still as here violate the um, California unfair competition law. Um, and uh, I so I think what's what that the reason I think it's an interesting place to start is because what you find in this opinion is, um, a kind of it, It's permeated by these, these conclusions by the judge that essentially say Apple is really close to violating, to, to being acting anti-competitively here, but not quite. You, you see it all throughout the opinion. And I, mean, I think even there are places where when she's kind of assessing the underlying, when, when she's sort of concluding um, her analysis of the possibility for liability under the Sherman Act, she says something like, it's really close, but no, they, they're not liable here. The Epic hasn't met its burden to make out this case. The reason I think that's really interesting is because it leaves you with um, huge portions of this 185 page opinion that if you read sort of on their own out of context, sound like the judge deciding that Apple is a, a pernicious monopolist. There's really bad language here. Really bad language. I'm going to quote some of it.
0: Uh, yeah, right, actually, because, you know, why don't I go ahead and, and read yeah, some of this out right go now? Ahead. So some of these quotes, um, because I did want to ask you, you know, how much do these lines create a problem for Apple outside of this decision? You know, win yeah. the battle, lose the war. So things like, quote, nothing other than legal action seems to motivate Apple <laughs> to
1: reconsider
0: pricing and reduce rates. Um, another one.
1: God, there's actually a ton to unpack in that. Let's come back to that because
0: I'll I'll stop it. Okay. I'll I'll do okay. like one more, and then we'll okay. Oh, yeah, no, that. no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, Apple's slow innovation stems in part from its low investment in the App Store, um, and relatedly, that Apple has been slow to hire more reviewers. So there's kind of this depiction that Apple, you know, one of the one of the big arguments against monopoly is um, not that it necessarily gives you monopoly profits, although that's one thing, but that it makes you, you can relax, you know, life is easy and you don't, um, you rest on your laurels. That's, that's a fear of what monopoly causes. And even if she doesn't agree that they are a monopoly, they haven't quite crossed the line. The the opinion is full of language that gives that impression about the app store. So please. Yeah.
1: Yeah, So, so uh, yeah, um, it's a very good point. I think She doesn't say it that way, of course, but but it's a it's a nice characterization um, to sort of find that uh, you know the the the, what is it the calm and and um, oh god now I can't remember the what's the line.
0: We may have to put the line in the show notes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Anyway, Um,
1: in any case, yeah, it does sound like um, Apple is well. Basically, the judge essentially says Apple doesn't face any realistic competition here. So in this weird way, and, and, and I, should, I should probably back up and say the, the, the reason I think, um, just even within the confines of this case itself, we should talk about what this means for other cases, like you said. But, but even within the confines of this case itself, the reason I think this ambivalence is so significant is because um, uh, it it suggests that um, it's only the, the law or the current interpretation of the law, maybe, that is standing in the way of finding Apple liable here. That in a, in a in a common wisdom sort of way, Apple is a monopolist. I'm not saying she says this, but the, the judge says this. But you know, you could read this as saying, look, Apple is a is a monopolist. They face no competition. They're charging super competitive prices for all of their investment in R&D, they're not investing in R&D and app stores because they don't face any competition there. They're, and they are earning massive profits uh, from their behavior in the app store. It's not just a trivial part of Apple's business, it's a really substantial part of Apple's business. And, and they wouldn't be able to enjoy the fruits of their monopoly so well if they couldn't, um, you know, protect themselves from competition in the app store. Um, So, I mean, I guess I said this is relevant for the case itself, but it's not, it is relevant for this broader debate we're having right now about antitrust That's you know, there's a, you could sort of read this case as saying, again, I don't want to put words in the judge's mouth. I don't think she's saying this at all, but you could read this sort of as close to saying, you know, there's some technical, legal, precedential reasons why um, EPIC hasn't met its burden in this case, but but it should have been able to. And um, you know, I could see folks using this as Exhibit A in favor of changing the, the antitrust laws, or at least... A- Amy Klobuchar has
0: already done so. Yeah. So some sure. politicians are on Twitter... Oh, you mean
1: since the holding came out? or
0: uh, The case, same day right. as the ruling, you know, multiple politicians tweeted out saying, uh, you know, this decision shows there needs to be uh, an amendment right. to the antitrust law.
1: I mean, it's interesting because people will say that anytime someone loses a, a case, right. I mean, you know, it's it's illogical and it, and it's um it's anti um, intellectual. but but you know, I wanted the X person to win. I think they should have won. they lost. clearly the the law is messed up. Um, and and often that's you know, it's just politics and rhetoric. Here though, as I said, you can kind of look at the opinion itself and say, if the precedents were slightly different, or if the standards were slightly different, Apple would indeed have lost. And really, the only thing standing in the way of a proper outcome here is some bad precedent, not the actual facts in the case or the um, uh, or the economic analysis. Well, I don't agree do, with that. I'm just saying. That, oh that, yeah, no,
0: and and, yeah. and let's dive into that. Let me do some quick spade work so we can we can pick that apart a bit. So you've got uh, ten counts, as you said um a, a bunch of them are basically around the Sherman Act claiming that Apple's app store um, sh- they cannot make it into a walled garden there should be side loading of apps there should be independent app stores you should be able to uh, directly charge you know one of the things is Apple charges a commission 30 percent on larger providers um, and uh, I think
1: Epic even uh, argued essentially that any commission was was,
0: Yes, they, they well they complained about the rate itself. They complained right. about the fact that they have to go through Apple, um, and pretty much all of the all of those arguments by Epic failed. Uh, they succeed on a California, and, and I should add, they also were found to have breached contract because, as I mentioned yep. at the right. outset, they had right. their goofy 1984 ad campaign, and they they hot fixed code into an app update that allowed them to charge right. uh, people directly. Gave. Customers that option. Um, and the judge said, um, the contract, you know, you violated it. And to the extent that Apple had illegal terms in the contract, which I'll get to next, too bad, you shouldn't have gone about this self remedy the way you did. Right. Um, and then we get the anti steering claim under California law, as you said, where the judge says, but. Um, you don't, uh, Apple get to block developers from not even telling people that, Hey, there's this option where you can go and buy our stuff that doesn't have the 30%. And there's some real issues with how you're going to enforce that, that maybe we can get into later. Um, my question for you was going to be, you know, and this will probably allow you to start diving into your problems with the decision. One of my immediate reactions was, um, where how do you quantify this how is it because I know it's under distinct bodies of law so the judge could come and explain just as you were saying well there's legal grounds why the anti-steering uh claim succeeds and others fail but I'm looking at and some of her language sort of says oh well um we've got to get rid of the anti-steering provisions because that will increase competition and promote innovation and do all the things that are like sort of the goals of antitrust law oh but uh, the 30% commission that doesn't have to change, and Apple doesn't have to change other restrictions on its App Store. And there's, I felt like there was this sort of false precision, as if you could quantify this yeah. out and decide that the line is here and not
1: there. And it's especially weird given that that she spends a lot of this opinion lambasting the 30% commission. Uh, she, there's a lot of places where she basically says. Um, and I'm just going to read one here. Apple has provided no evidence that the rate it charges bears any quantifiable relation to the services provided. Um, uh, and and this, is, this is sort of stated throughout here. Um, uh, it's clear that part, it, it seems clear to me, that part of what's animating the judge's um, opinion here is her sense that the app store, the the thirty percent app store rate, which, as we all know, isn't is no longer exactly in place, and and um, and probably was never you know on average exactly at thirty percent, but that's how they refer to it. In the case that the thirty percent rate is is too high, I think she may even say some in some places it's it's evidence of anti competitive behavior.
0: I think like an incipient but, antitrust violation. Yeah,
1: right. Which which is, I think she says even more than that. I think she even comes out and says that 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 Apple behaves anti-competitively. Mm-hmm. So I, and that you're, you know, sort of the evidence of that is this excessive, um, is this excessive rate. So I, I think your question is a really great one. Um, there are other, she has other problems with with their behavior too, or there are other indicia that they're acting anti-competitively, not just the rate. But um, somehow the the only injunction that is required to, to solve this problem is this limitation, the the removal of Apple's anti-steering provision. Um, And I don't don't think there's any effort in this case to explain, nor do I think there has to be under the law, but I think it's worth noting that there isn't really an effort in this case to say, here's how I think my proposed injunction Will lead to pro-competitive results on these dimensions that I have been so critical of for the last 185 pages. In fact, there, there are some places earlier in the in the opinion where she um, talks about this, but in the in the little bit of the opinion where she announces kind of what the injunction is going to be and um, and you know sort of offers a a little bit of a defense of it. Uh, it's it's really uh, conclusory. It's um, you know this will introduce competition and um, either Apple will l- lower its uh, will lower its prices or let me find it exactly. Here we go. Okay, it's in our conclusion. Uh, in summary, the court does not find Apple is an antitrust monopolist in the submarket for mobile gaming transactions. However, it does find Apple's conduct in enforcing anti-steering restrictions is anti-competitive. A remedy to eliminate those provisions is appropriate. This measure, measured remedy will increase competition, increase transparency, increase consumer choice and information while preserving Apple's iOS ecosystem, which has pro-competitive justifications. Moreover, it does not require the court to micromanage business operations, which courts are not well-suited to do as the Supreme Court has appropriately recognized. Now, I I agree, I, I think all of the, um, reasons she gives implicitly for not going further. That's really what she's doing here by saying, you know, I, these are all the reasons why I'm not, you know, I'm not trashing their business model. I'm not requiring the court to be engaging in price controls and all of this stuff. Um, I agree with her on that, but I don't think the, the positive case is really made here. What what you get as a result of this um, injunction is for the judge, um, and there's probably some truth to this, more information. Her her real criticism, her ultimate criticism in this whole case, everything boils down to the thing that Apple is doing that it can't justify doing, at least under the California unfair competition law, is constraining the flow of information between developers and uh, users of their apps in this one particular way meaning the developer can't say to someone who buys their app hey you know i want you to buy pay for this um uh, you know treasure chest full of jewels um and if you do it um following this link to my website i will earn more revenue as a result of that and also the same goes for um provide me your email address and if you do that i'll be able to email you Um, deals on in-app purchases that you can engage in by going directly to my website and not using the app store.
0: Well, one thing I think that's interesting, she says, you know, judge, she is openly acknowledges, she agrees with the Supreme Court that judges are not very good micromanagers or central planners of businesses. And yet even this limited remedy leaves a lot unresolved. I mean, can a developer just put a button that you click it and it takes you straight to PayPal or to Stripe? Um, You know, can Apple require that you charge the same price, even if you're going, you know, directing the customer somewhere else? And and actually, if you look at a section that's unrelated to the remedy here, she leaves open the possibility that Apple is entitled to charge its commission, even if that requires it to audit app developers. So it actually seems like she's going to be stuck with a lot of the problems of micromanagement just from this, uh, you know, supposedly limited remedy.
1: I I don't I mean I don't think this is the la- the end of, of the litigation here I mean depending on how Apple implements this of course um, but uh, but you make a great point the 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 injunction itself leaves a lot of questions open and they're not clearly answered by the opinion because as I said the opinion really doesn't go into great detail aligning the provisions of the injunction with the sort of specific. Um, improvements in in this this mechanism, this interaction between developers, Apple, and mm-hmm. and app users, it really doesn't do that in a sufficient way that you can use that to interpret the um, the injunction. Uh, so, for I mean, for example, if all it matters is is the provision of information, which again, there are a couple of places where that's really Kind of what she rests on in this in the decision. If that's really all that matters, um, you don't necessarily have to engage in uh, remove the anti searing provisions to allow that. You could presumably impose a remedy that basically says um, the uh, you know, app developers can't be constrained from um, communicating directly with users of their apps. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll try to use that to engage in in, uh, in in app payment processing outside of the app store, but you don't have to specify that really. Again, if your problem is consumers don't know enough about the, these other options out there because Apple is constraining developers' ability to communicate with consumers, um, the, the steering provision is kind of a weak way of getting there. You could directly require them to allow communication. And in theory, you get all of the benefit that you want. Well, you wouldn't get all of the benefit because she clearly seems to think, as I said, the prices are too high. There is an anti-competitive claim here. There is an argument that there's insufficient competition to ensure that the in-app, that that Apple's um, um, app store fee on in-app purchases, there's not sufficient competition to be able to assume that it's at a competitive level. And in fact, you can assume that it's too high. And I think she wants it to come down. But I don't think that's what the U.S. antitrust laws really let you do. Again, that's why she didn't decide this under U.S. antitrust laws; She decided it under the California Consumer Protection yeah, Law. Let me shoot that question
0: at you because you've written yeah. some good stuff um, that I've seen on, on um, why... Remedies in this case, this is before the decision came out. You know, don't really lead to uh, what Frank Easterbrook would call a better tomorrow. You know, all kinds of remedies you might impose, in, uh, you know, lead to unintended consequences. And I think that's very intuitive when it comes to something like allowing side loading. Yeah. Apple says, "Well, look that that." diminishes our ability to control the quality of the product. That's Steve Jobs' original concern. And uh, the judge was uh, was open to that argument. She said that is not pretextual. But to, to really kind of aim squarely at um, maybe one of the, the, as you said, the point she focuses on the most, um, she says, look, this 30% rate is um, not justified by the value currently provided. She kind of seems to accept what you've talked about of like Apple created this great product, they innovated. They're now getting a return on investment where they basically get to um, reap the fruits of their innovation by getting this profit. That's maybe not justified. If you, if you just look right today and don't think about ex ante incentives. Uh, my question for you then is, is there some, point that we need that, that the law is justified in finding? And maybe you have to go outside this litigation and, and we turn to legislation. Is there a point where you can say, OK, company, you did something awesome, but that was many years ago. You've been reaping this massive profit this whole time. Uh, now, OK, it's time to step in and take action and reduce your power. Um, and so I guess I'd ask, A, do you, is that maybe a justified legal fix? And B, I mean okay is Apple at that point now what's your what's your response there i mean what's your response to some of her harsh language about their profit margin
1: well I mean, p- partly the answer to the second question is the answer to the first which is mm-hmm. which is you you in theory you might be able to justify that kind of intervention if you could reliably know when you were intervening at such a point that you still maintain sufficient incentives for companies like Apple to enter and build this massive innovative platform they did. And you can't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that, that and, and, and she's very cautious about that. She's clearly aware of that in this opinion, right? This is why in the bit I read just a minute ago, she's very careful to say, look, I don't wanna destroy Apple's model and I don't wanna you know um, destroy their incentives to innovate or, uh, provide the services they do provide. Um, nevertheless, this moderated uh, um, injunction will um, will allow us to get the benefits of competition without destroying those things. I don't think that, that that's justifiable. Um, I think that we know very little about the conditions that are conducive to innovation. We certainly don't know at any given margin, whether pushing one way or the other is going to put us over the edge. So we, we are hurting consumers more than we're helping them by constraining innovation, even in, in, the, in the, in exchange for some short-term price decrease. Um, and as Easterbrook would say, we're better off ensuring that we don't commit any false positives, um, even at the expense of a few false negatives. I, I I agree with that completely. <laughs> I, well, I think, think the hard thing
0: I, arguing your position um, is Schumpeterian, the the Schumpeterian justification, if you will, inherently relies on um, we'll see, and I can't tell you the future. So yeah. it, it, under that theory, it's not that uh, other companies, other than like Android, of course, are going to come in and start shipping away at the app store market necessarily. I mean, it could happen, but more that while Apple is um, maybe getting slow footed about spending enough money on its app store, uh and I'm just spitballing here, you know, another company comes up with the metaverse, or we start uh, you know, putting the the internet in the brain chip. The reason my examples sound ridiculous is precisely because I don't yeah, know it's yeah. going to be something that none of us see. So I'm just kind of putting some placeholders there that it sound stupid. Um Precisely for the reason, you know, I forget who it was who uh, said uh, uh, when the Beatles were first coming along, you know, the four piece band is finished. It's all it always ends up sounding like that. And you, of course, are aware of many of these examples. But the unfortunate thing is, is uh, I think sometimes the answer then sounds kind of dissatisfying in a case like this one where the judge ends up saying, um your optics are terrible but and it, and i as a judge it's not my problem to come up with uh you know imagine the threats to you they're just kind of floating out there and as a result i do wonder if this decision is kind of just a loaded gun sitting waiting to be picked up on the hill or in europe or, or whatnot
1: or, or by, i mean don't discount the plaintiff's bar either
0: sure sure like do you think sure this a lot of, i'm that, that, sure apple versus pepper i forget exactly where they are in in doing that apple, apple versus, versus pepper.
1: pepper is still is still ongoing but there was also a a um a class action against apple brought by developers that they settled um i don't know within the last couple of months not not that long ago but apple versus pepper i believe is still <clears throat> is still pending and so that so for those who don't know that's the Um, That's the class action brought on a very similar theory that uh, brought by consumers, though, who claim to have been overcharged for in-app purchases because of Apple's 30% fee. Um, But I also, I I think that, um, I think that the problem with the, the logic is that it, it does unravel very quickly. Um, I guess it's why I have a problem with this ambivalence in the language and the opinion. I, I wish that the the judge were, had more of the courage of her convictions to say, the reason that antitrust jurisprudence is like it is, is so that even when we can, um, when we think we have, we see uh, problematic situations without, enough evidence and, and that most of the jurisprudence is about how much evidence and of what kind the plaintiff has to adduce in order to win their case. Without that, we're not going to find liability. And, sh- and like I said, she says that. She, she says they haven't met their burden, but she's so, um, she seems to be so unsure that that's the right outcome that she bends over backward to say, you know, gosh, they really, came really close and, and it, you know, she's inviting um, uh, an, an appellate court to overrule her. She's inviting other courts to find differently. She even literally invites other plaintiffs to come in. For example, in this case, she says, you know, this case applies only in her decision. It is another way in which it's limited, only applies to game developers on, the, um, on mobile platforms. But even somewhere she says, the outcome could be very different for non-game developers.
0: Do you want to comment on her treatment of the market definition? So, well, yeah. and one side note, I will also note her remedy on the anti-steering, her injunction against yeah. um, app developers telling customers, you know, look, you can go get our commission-free maybe purchase outside of the app. That is universal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, at least within the United States. Um, right. But sorry, to go to the market definition, it's, by she- the way,
1: itself is really interesting, right? I think it's an, it's, I mean. I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's it's really um, it's interesting. Again, her justification for that is to say, um, I'm pretty sure that non-game developers would have the same argument. So, so there's no reason not to apply this remedy more broadly than just game developers. Having spent you know a good 50 pages of the opinion um, carefully laying out why the right relevant why the relevant market here is mobile game uh, transactions. Um, the remedy applies more broadly than that now again that may be totally permissible under the the california unfair competition law i you know i'm i'm not suggesting that she's done anything um you know, virus here i i just i think that it's problematic from a jurisprudential and and philosophical standpoint
0: well i do think you know the issue with the the anti steric remedy um it there I, I i there is a certain intuition to it it doesn't I, I, let's be frank, it doesn't smell good that Apple says you can't even tell people about these options. My more problem is that that's kind of the extent of it. I mean, the, the, there's no real rigor to it. I'm not saying she wasn't rigorous. I'm saying it, it's not necessarily subject to rigor. Um, okay. You know, maybe you might say like Hayekian sense. I don't know. Um, you know, outside of obvious cases in antitrust, like price fixing, you know, this is often... An issue, um, but sorry, I drifted off. Uh, you know, anything else about the the, the market definition that struck you?
1: Um, I guess what strikes me most about the market definition destruction, uh, <laughs> the market definition um, determination, is uh, how um, narrow it is. In a in a way that shows the right answer to this is to say we you don't know no. this. I mean, she goes through this analysis multiple times, saying there's evidence on both sides, nothing dispositive. There's evidence on both sides throughout the opinion. There's um, you know good reasons why the market should be broader, good reasons why the market should be narrower. She sort of settles on this as a as a pragmatic. Um, default basically because nothing else was adequately proven that's overstating it a little bit but that's not far from the case um so it goes to the point you were just making i'm not saying i know that it's wrong i'm just saying i don't think that she really demonstrates that it's the right market and and there's a real feeling of reverse engineering there is definitely to me a feeling of um i don't want to you know if i adopt one market definition it will be impossible for me to uh, not rule in Epic's favor on aspects of their claims that would trash Apple's business model, and she just isn't prepared to do that. Uh, and and vice versa. If you know if she accepts Apple's uh, proposed market definition, there's no insufficient justification for the outcome she draws here. I don't I don't know if that's really true, but I mean it sort of smells like that. And by the way, there's no market definition requirement under the um, the California UCL, so. It, you know, in a way, it's all kind of irrelevant to the ultimate outcome because um, there is no market definition requirement there.
0: Well, so, I mean, yeah. so reading between the lines, and and I should be very open that you know what I'm doing is speculative here, but there was a degree of um, you're a big rich business, you're a big rich business. Actually, at one point in talking about unconscionability, she actually did kind of come right out and say, "Ah, you guys are businesses. You'll you just deal." And she she seemed to almost revel in um, ripping on each side's experts. And oh,
1: yeah. she... Well, that's, that's where I was, I was going, by the way, in my point about the, the market definition thing is that even that, for, for what it's, even if, I mean, I'm not suggesting that, that experts are particularly good at this either, but she comes to this market definition by throwing out all of the experts basically and saying, Eh, none of them got it right none of the markets that are proposed here are right and and sort of picking her up but sorry you were saying well
0: yeah and, and uh i i a little shout out to the verge cast they were joking about how if you're epic um she basically says oh you know too bad you failed to adduce sufficient evidence under this market definition that i just made up and didn't tell you about oh too <laughs> bad for you um But that, that was kind of the approach she, she, she didn't like Epic. Let's be clear about that. I mean, she, she said that they do, they, their contracts aren't necessarily magnanimous to the people that they deal with. And she wasn't pleased about their little um, 1984 ad stunt and, you know, stunt it was. Um, and so she seemed to, and again, I just let me be blatant and say it over and over. I'm, I'm kind of speculating, but it seems like she, she was just angling to sort of salt the earth for everyone and leave everyone unhappy and provide ammunition for someone else to, uh, take these companies down a peg. I mean, so it's as a I guess the, the take home I'm getting at it's, it's not actually a terribly constructive opinion at the end of the day. And I'm not actually sure it's terribly illuminating, even though the sort of um, uh, the people hungry for action on the Hill are going to try to make a meal out of it.
1: Yeah. I, 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 in fact, was going to ask you because I think this is, this is a, this is really more your bailiwick than mine. um, And, you know, maybe moving into the, sort of philosophical realm for a moment. If let's assume just for a moment that the opinion is not a very useful antitrust opinion, you know, with air quotes in the in the world of antitrust doctrine. Um, but what if what if we could kind of agree that it was the right outcome in some you know cosmic sort of sense. Um, that that uh you know she's she's navigating between between judicial signposts and she's making sure she's not really running afoul of any doctrine but she's ultimately trying to find a an outcome that seems satisfying um as a human being not necessarily as an anti-trust adjudicator do you, do you think is there any problem with that i mean Isn't that kind of the system we have? I mean, let's be honest. Judge, we have the law is full of standards that judges impose all over the place, as if they have any concrete meaning to them. But they're just random words. You just have to say the right words, and and you know anything can be deemed reasonable or or um, sufficient or you know whatever. Take whatever standard you want. So I mean, I don't think it's out of you know it's crazy to say our system is kind of set up to have judges. By the way, especially in equity, right? This is an equitable remedy, not a damages remedy, especially in equity, just kind of you know, navigate the shoals and come up with a fairly reasonable decision and let's see what happens.
0: Well, I think that if ever there were a case where it's kind of hard to feel indignant about that happening, it's this one. Um, The, I mean, Apple, another side note, just so many damning emails coming out in this case. And you and I both know well that hot docs are just (laughs) such a, such, it's such a fallacy to rely on them for antitrust liability in any kind of rigorous sense. But, but you, you, you've opened the door to this more equitable sense. And the, the fact is it like for like 10 years So it was, I think it was 2011 that somebody at Apple said, do we really need 30%? Does that make a lot of sense? And there's all these emails saying like, yeah, our strategy is this lock-in strategy. I mean, um, Craig Federighi, he's uh, on an email saying the point is to make sure, you know, the reason we're not going to put iMessage on Android is so that parents don't, aren't able to give their kids Android phones without, you know, oh, rough like it's rough when that it's a bad day when that comes into litigation so if ever there were a case where it's kind of hard to get angry about what you just described happening it's one where the judge says and judge gonzalez rogers really had it out on this anti-stirring thing of you're not even telling people that there's an option um and if ever you know the time has come for that to be allowed so i'm kind of with you there my problem is outside of this. it's yeah, an extreme instance, and again, I'm not. T- I'm telling you something you know full well. Um, you know how do plaintiffs' lawyers work? There's always <laughs> there's always some judge who, in a you know the old uh, hard cases make bad law. Okay, I'm going to make an exception. You know the old rule was that to prove, uh, that we'll take the alien tort statute. Okay, Justice Souter says, we're gonna just leave the door slightly ajar to bring a claim under the alien tort statute where you can claim a tort against a corporation in foreign lands or whatever for this very narrow circumstances and plaintiff's lawyers, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole. They're gonna test every spot for a hole. They're gonna tap every crack looking for a leak, whatever metaphor you wanna use. And it's an invitation, you know, as soon as the judges start just sort of um, doing it by feel, you invite a ton of rent-seeking
1: because yeah, or, or, just or sue you can, and or see. You it. Call it a, discover, a discovery process.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: And I mean, um, I'm saying it, maybe it's maybe that's the system we have. Again, I, I I don't disagree with you, and and maybe we need to place some other constraints on on um, the ability of plaintiffs lawyers to to sort of go too far with this kind of thing. But maybe we, we need that. We you know we need enough cases to be brought in order to to figure out what the law should actually be, right?
0: Well I appreciate your level of of comfort with this Jeff but I, oh no yeah, I'm, i mean... I'm, as always I'm
1: playing devil's advocate I should I should put the disclaimer up you know likes and retweets don't mean um, um, I yeah. do I,
0: I do think some people sometimes people take um, the argument too far that judges, there's like a democratic deficit, and you oh know, black robed E4s. There are actually a lot of cases where I'm very sympathetic with that, but yeah. you, you can't put too much weight on it because exactly as you were saying, um, you know, even if you just take basic tort, there's a lot of places in common law where there is a, a history going back centuries where, you know, judges have to use their judgment. What is Uh, you know, where is the line with duty? And, you know, you talk about sending this stuff to juries and that gets to your question of should juries be, you know, in the modern day, looking at these complex issues of patent or antitrust or whatever, does that make sense? It's a whole can of worms, maybe we can just skip. But as far as judges making these decisions, I'm sympathetic to what your um, your basic point is. I just, outside of um, sort of the worst cases, I, I think you know you're you're inviting people to take that ball and run with it
1: way too far. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I I very sympathetic with that assessment as well, and I I, I do applaud uh, Judge Gonzalez Rogers in this case, um, trying to cabin. Things as as in in try, trying to cabin both the, the analysis and the, the holding, um, in you know important ways. Um, it, it will never be sufficient, though, to stop the the flood of of plaintiffs' lawyers and and for that matter, legislators and others, you know, crying foul. Um, but at least at least you know we can applaud her for trying. Um, I mean, it's a workmanlike opinion.
0: You've talked about your sort of maybe lack of satisfaction with the findings that she discusses and, and sort of the lack of connection with her conclusion. Um, and you sort of you've given the impression that there's a, a gestalt, you know, a feel <laughs> that she is invoking, but, but she never ties it all together. I mean, can you elaborate on that?
1: I I think it goes back to what I was saying before. I think she has this very strong sense, but she's aware that the antitrust laws don't allow her to find liability on this basis. So she's finding almost like a loophole to to find um, liability. Uh, On the basis of this kind of um, it, it's ironic because she's very careful not to be to to sort of make very you know, broad, huge pronouncements that um, that don't have any basis in fact. Yet she makes these broad, huge pronouncements that amount to prices are too high, and I know how to fix them. And um, and yet the thing that you would really want her to do, if that were true, again, not really viable under the antitrust laws. But but I'd like to see in this opinion this you know, 185 pages devoted to why this remedy will work, how it's gonna work, why it's gonna to lead to the outcomes that she thinks will be preferable, why we should want those outcomes, even though the antitrust law doesn't dictate them, why we should use this totally amorphous, you know, unfair consumer practices statute, which lets you do basically anything. All right, I'm being, I'm exaggerating, but you know, it does, um, and um, to, to, you know, to, I think, Again, I feel so weird saying this because she she compared to a lot of judges, she's very restrained and and tries not to make these grand statements or these grand decisions, but she really is micromanaging this market while saying, "I don't think we should micromanage this kind of market." And she has lots of citations that are great on that score. And yet at the end of the day, what I see, the common thread I see under her uh, so unifying her opinion is, Prices are too high because Apple hasn't justified those prices with respect to costs or other objective indicia of value. And I think that we can solve this alleged problem by requiring them to provide more information, but not just more information because it's what Epic asked for, some easier ability to enable developers to use other payment mechanisms than the app Store.
0: I mean, well, maybe? yeah, and if I may come but, at it from a slightly different direction that maybe um, can, can both give an, a, another way to view this and also an ability to, for us to kind of shift maybe to looking forward as we, mm. as we wind down. Um, yeah. Okay, so she applies a remedy, and that remedy involves in some way letting app developers uh, tell customers about um, off off app store payment mm. options. Okay. So it's a $19 billion app store uh, market for Apple, like s- more than 6 billion of that is in the United States where the judge has jurisdiction. Um, I mean, okay, judge, how much of a dent is that going to put in Apple's revenues? How, how damaging is that going to be to the $6 billion market? Um, is Are the big whales, as, as we all know, it's it's really not a large number of apps that create a lot, you know, most of the revenue. Um, If you get a few of the big ones, you know, really effectively moving people off platform with their payments, it could be a lot of that 6 billion. Or it could be that Apple, you know, it's got home field advantage and, and people often don't take advantage of these kinds of things when, you know, small amounts of money are at stake. But it's weird that we don't know the answer to that. I don't think oh, the judge no, you think either. we should. <laughs> um, and you'd think that if that were the proper remedy, we'd have some sense. And I, I think she probably is going to have to make decisions case by case going forward. So one thing I wanted to ask you that I've already kind of kneecapped the potential responses, you know, how damaging is this for Apple? How much do they stand to lose? How much is this going to blow open their app store? I mean, do you have a take?
1: well i mean honestly I, I like you i don't know i think it could be hugely damaging or not at all right it could be especially depending on how you how the courts subsequently interpret the injunction as it's written here assuming it withstands appeal um are our developers going to be able to essentially put a button on their on their apps that um that Allow the app developer to go outside the app store to get to, let's say, PayPal, but without even going through the browser. You know, maybe maybe they required Apple is required to make their APIs available so that that it automatically opens PayPal on the user's phone and it's pre-populated and they provide their payment directly um, through another app on the phone and are instantly brought back to where they were. Basically. Not much different, I mean, really than the mechanism that's employed within the App Store right now. If that were true, if that were permissible under her remedy, I could see that having a pretty substantial effect on, uh, on Apple's um, revenue. On the other hand, if it's much more complicated than that, I could see it having no effect. People, people seem to be very lazy, uh, you know, a fraction of a second waiting for a web page to load and they move on to another web page. If that's what ends up happening here, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, the the real winners,
0: <laughs> the real winners, <laughs> as so often, could be the lawyers.
1: Um, <laughs> well, yeah, of course, they're always the real winners. I well, think. so ironically, by the way, in the in the the developers' um, uh, class action suit that was um, that was just recently settled, as I said, within the last couple of months, the lawyers got thirty percent of the um, <laughs> uh, of the remedy of the damages.
0: Well, 30% is a funny number. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that my colleague, Jim Dunstan, likes to point out, because he worked with uh, video game developers decades ago, and that when, back in the day of brick and mortar stores and CDs and boxes, you know, when you were selling mist or whatever, uh, the video game developer got about 30% was their take after all of the expenses there. So, Um, although I do think there are valid concerns of, of Apple continuing to get these high margins and as has been, been made clear, I'm not really clear what you do about that. Let's, let's acknowledge, I mean, it's revolutionary where you are now, the amount of progress that we've made and, and,
1: um, yeah, I mean, the, the, but for world is not really, is not really raised in this case, but the, but for world is developers, you know, doing it themselves in some fashion, in a way that costs way more than 30% of the the revenue it well just-
0: that goes to um you know i i all of this stuff about apple being um sort of sitting on its laurels but let's also remember you know a lot of developers are happy with the system precisely because you right. do it through the app store um they handle taxes you know like across <laughs> jurisdictions like it's not i don't want to make it sound like they do nothing um but last
1: question jeff well, but, and or, by the way sorry, just yeah. today to, 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 you know Credit where it's due, this decision I don't think disrupts that in any way. No, right? I mean, no, it doesn't. The holding is so limited it, or is so, you know, narrowly construed that while I don't think it has any very clear justification in the case, it does do a good job of not being overly broad. And small developers who are not Epic, by the way, right? Epic is a massive developer in a very different situation than the vast majority of developers who are, who are providing apps through the app store. I don't think they're going to be significantly disrupted unless and until there is such a big, this goes to your prior question, unless and until there's such a big um, uh, disruption to Apple's revenue from the app store that they fundamentally change it in a way Mm -hmm. where they say it's just not worth it. And we're, you know, switching to some other model that actually does end up imposing costs on small developers. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a trivial possibility. I think that is a real possibility.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't want you know to put a fly in the ointment. Um, the ruling is narrow, which is which is good. It is potentially only to the benefit of the larger developers. I mean, to to send people off App Store to your payment option, your store, you need to have a store. That's your like. You need to construct your own stuff. Um, so I, and then maybe I,
1: intermediaries may crop up to facilitate that, but I don't think there's anything in this an decision that requires Apple to permit the intermediaries in any way. Well, Again, this, this ties and, into
0: many unknowns, you know, we're going to yeah. have to see about a lot of this, um, which um, ties into, you know, my last question or just opening to you. So as we move forward, um, I think you and I have both made clear that we are not, uh, prognosticators who know the future or even really want to look into crystal balls, but maybe you can at least orient the listeners about what, um, what the big pieces in movement are now. Um, you know, if you want to offer thoughts on how this might go on the Hill or how it might go on appeal, um, you know, I, I open the door.
1: Um, I think the opinion is inviting uh, an, a, is inviting itself to be overruled, overturned on appeal, <laughs> in, a, in a weird way. Um, I, I don't want to go as I said. I don't want to take that too far. I think she would like it if this could stand, but I think she realizes that that it may be hard for this decision to stand. I actually think, by the way, so this is so. Yesterday, I was asked, it was, I'm sorry, not yesterday, when the decision came out on Friday, right, so so a couple of days ago, I was asked, who's more likely to appeal this, Apple or Epic, and before Epic announced, as they have, that they are appealing this, um, my my conclusion was that Apple was more likely to, um, to appeal this, so it just goes to show how horrible a prognosticator I am.
0: Well, for one thing, I'll say I, I think we can ex- still expect Apple to appeal. They're just a step. Oh yeah, than, right, than of, course, of course,
1: yeah. And by, by the way, just one of many um, bases for that. The 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 law. Sorry, the case was decided under California unfair competition law. She has a paragraph in which she says, um, "Apple says if I decided under this law, it should apply only to California transaction, you know, consumers basically or developers. Sorry, in California." Uh, and she says, "No, it applies nationally." And and she she doesn't actually cite any cases for that. She just explains why Apple's citation doesn't lead to a requirement that it mm-hmm. is limited to California. And then she says, <laughs> "So so Apple may very well uh, appeal on that basis." But I'll also note that in a in a completely disjointed from any analysis, she also says, uh, "Epic thinks the injunction should apply globally," and I don't agree with that. And that's and there's no citation or anything else. N- not, not that I think it's a hard case to make. It's a California law. It would be, I mean, it's bad enough that California writes laws for the rest of the country. Imagine if they're doing it for the rest of the world. And right?
0: Shades right. of um, <laughs> of uh, Judge Co. Uh, didn't she issue a global injunction in the Qualcomm
1: case? Did she? Interesting. At least that was decided under federal law. But yeah, so so right. There'll be appeals. I, I actually, I think. With the caveat that, that I'm a horrible prognosticator, um, I think there's a reasonable chance that it gets overturned on appeal, um, and uh, not and, and that the ironically, it's the analysis that sort of that gets changed. It, you know, some of these faults that we've been talking about in this discussion uh, end up being corrected. I don't know exactly what that does to the remedy. It might be that that you could justify this remedy or something like it better than this decision does, but it's not clear. I mean, I would think if you could, she would have done that. So maybe the remedy gets overturned as well. Um, I think no matter what the outcome, it's going to be seen as fodder for legislative change. That's sort of the state of the world we live in. If you win, if the if the plaintiffs win, it's evidence that, that this should be the case in other cases and we need to change the law so that plaintiffs always win or win more, and if they lose, then obviously it's a basis for... For changing the law, um, as you I think pointed out at the beginning, there are there's at least one, and maybe maybe if I remember right, two different um, federal app store related bills floating around. Maybe even more than two, and there's a bunch of state bills floating around too. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so there's there's a, a, you know big interest in this um, in this topic. I, I think interestingly, kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's really it's rooted in the same kind of analysis that i see in this opinion in a lot of ways it's it's not really economically justifiable it's a sense of of the, something is unfair here that that apple has earned enough and it's time for them to stop earning as much and if you're if your argument against imposing constraints on apple is oh you know the next apple won't invest the same amount or or it's just not appropriate to, to take people's property without um, appropriate social justification, none of that's gonna matter because Apple's earned enough. And um, and I think there's a real danger in all of that, but I see that as the impetus behind a lot of um, these bills that are floating around. And I think you, you'll see people pointing to this decision as both supporting the analysis, analysis I say in air quotes, scare quotes um, uh, behind those bills. Um, uh, but also because the remedy doesn't go as far as the the provisions of those bills, as a reason why those bills have to be passed. Because otherwise, we're stuck with ineffectual remedies like the ones, like the one in this case, For, from their point of view, not, not mine. Um, I don't know. I think the chances of those bills passing. I, I kind of think the chance of any bill passing is fairly low these days, right? Except unless it's a $3.5 trillion spending, but those you can pass. But, you know, um, uh, so I don't really know how likely those bills are, are, are to pass. Um, I'm certainly worried about them. And, you know, it's not a done deal. They're not dead in the water, nor are they uh, guaranteed. So I think a lot of attention will, will switch to the federal bills. And meanwhile, you know, people seem to only care about things that happen at the federal level. As I said, there's a bunch of state bills moving and those are even more pernicious in some ways because just imagine we have 50 different state bills (laughs) imposing 50 different sets of restrictions on on app stores with companies like Apple and Google um, that are hardly limited to. In yeah, I mean,
0: they, they, they create additional arguments that uh, companies opposing them can raise a, up to and including, you know, preemption, but they also just increase the chances that something really bad kind of sneaks through and is dr- disruptive to the whole, you know, national market. The dormant Commerce Clause could be getting a lot of exercise uh, in the couple of years to come.
1: And as I recall, there's a couple of Supreme Court justices right now who have suggested they'd like to see that. Isn't that. Right? Yeah,
0: well um jeff i think that's a great analysis to end on this has been uh great fun you've you've in the last answer raised three or four different things we could have you back on for a whole other episode on so um you know you're welcome back anytime
1: i'd be more Um, than than happy to yeah
0: well we'll have to do it again sometime thank you so much uh i'm corbin barthold this is the tech policy podcast until next time